0: to find out if it's right for you.
1: You done with your Oreo? Yeah, <laughs> I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Do um, we really know, you know, know, you know, 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 you know what happened? The brother did. The, the brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about
2: death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... This
0: a thingy, thingy, thingy.
2: Um, hello.
1: Hi there.
2: Happy Wednesday. Happy
1: Wednesday. Once again, we are here on an early Wednesday morning, bringing you the weird shit. The The
2: weird shit in the news.
1: The mysteries.
2: The murderies.
1: The thingies. Mine's a thingy today.
2: Mine's a murdery.
1: Yours is very murdery. Mine is
2: super murdery. So murdery. Yeah.
1: This is Mystery Murdery Thingy. Yeah, I'm Chloe. I'm Mario. And...
2: Yeah,
1: we talk about mysteries.
2: Yeah, we already did this.
1: We did this already. <laughs>
2: um. Okay. So you said
1: what did yours I say? was a thingy. Yes.
2: I said mine was a murder. I
1: know what you're doing. You don't know what I'm doing. I don't know
2: what you're doing. And I'm you're excited. gonna go first. I'm excited to learn.
1: Anything you want to say before we get started? Um. Maybe just. I was. Oh, I was gonna say just like. Because um, we say it at the end, but if people don't stay past like the show and everything, we are on Patreon now, so we're gonna have a video up there. I'm gonna get it done. We we taped it. I just need to. Hopefully, by the time this is up, I will be working hard on putting the video up too. <laughs> God and bless. we're putting God bless pictures up there. I think I'm gonna put some pictures from my story up today because there are some cool ones. And, uh, yeah, patreon.com, search for mystery murdery thingy or patreon.com slash mystery murdery with Vinny. And that's all I gotta say, so and let's get started.
2: follow us on Instagram, mystery murdery thingy.
1: We're putting pictures up on Instagram. Yeah. Yes, um, we're getting off our lazy butts.
2: We're doing things, guys. We're doing things.
1: You're doing it. You're doing it, Peter. Um, That's us. We're we're Peter Pan in this situation. Oh,
2: so it wasn't a Family Guy reference? No, it was Peter Pan.
1: Well, Hook.
2: See that one way over my head.
1: You never saw the movie Hook
2: with Robin Williams?
1: It's a classic. I've
2: seen that movie.
1: You don't remember that part? No. They're eating the food, but it's like the make believe food.
2: I don't remember it. A, I haven't seen it in a while.
1: It's. I think it's because I was like a little kid. It's a good movie for little kids. Yeah. And adults. And people in the ages between them, and then also elderly people.
2: Moving on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, let's actually get started. So, yeah,
2: um, actually, mine is a, technically a hometown murder, quote-unquote right. hometown. Right, right. Um, so Bloomington Normal is a college town, home to Illinois State University and Illinois Wesleyan, and um, some other colleges, smaller mm-hmm. community colleges, um I like to say this town is hip hop and happening. I don't know about you Mario, so, I'd but... like
1: to say that, but also I'd like to not lie.
2: <laughs> I...
1: I mean, it's it's a lot more happening than like Cairo or El Paso. That's Cairo, Illinois and El Paso, Illinois, by the way. <laughs> not, I... not the cities of the similar names and the same name in the other case that is in a different place. But yes, it's Central Illinois. It's a medium-sized exurb of Chicago. Yeah. Go on. So, in
2: 1983, there was a quadruple homicide that technically to this day is unsolved. Hmm. Now, this is nuts. Um, It's it's very tragic. It is a family uh, murder. Hmm. And I got... um, My sources from many different places, but I also watched um, a documentary um, that was on... It was like 2020 on Investigation Discovery Presents Homicide, and then it was called The Darkest Night or something like that. And it was on the Hendrix family murders, and that's what I'm about to talk about. It was really, really good. It had a lot of uh, details in it, and I couldn't find it to watch it again. I couldn't find it anywhere. And it was Did weird. you
1: watch it on YouTube originally? I or? watched
2: it at home on TV.
1: Oh. Okay. A couple
2: weeks ago. So, yeah.
1: So, it wasn't that long ago. It right? wasn't
2: that long ago. Okay. Yeah. So, November 7th, 1983, four members of the Hendrix family were found brutally murdered in their home. Susan Hendrix, 30, Rebecca Hendrix, 9, Grace um, Hendrix, 7, and Benjamin Hendrix, 5. So, a mother and her children, and David Hendricks, uh, the father who's 29, had been away on a business trip in Wisconsin. Uh, the family had been brutally killed with an axe and a butcher knife, which oh were found God. at the scene. Um, there was blood spatter everywhere, blood-soaked sheets. Um, they do an interview with the retired officers, and they talk about how much blood, like, how much blood there was and all this stuff. Um like
1: it was a lot even for them. Yeah. As like seasoned officers, it was like, oh my God. Yeah. It's like the friggin' shining, right?
2: Yeah. There was no sign of struggle. Um and the weapons, the axe and the butcher knife, they were both found um at the crime scene. Uh, but they appeared to have been cleaned. Mm. And so it was wiped of fingerprints. So there's no um evidence there. So David Hendricks, 29 at the time, um, is the father, and he had been away on a business trip in Wisconsin, and um, he was concerned because his family had not been answering or returning his calls, so he called some of his relatives to go check on the family, and that's what they found. So of course David Hendricks, the father who wasn't there, is immediately, you know, the the suspect, the leading suspect. Of course. So his story was that um, that night, Susan had gone to a baby shower. And in the meantime, David had taken the kids out to eat at Chuck E. Cheese. And afterwards, they dropped off some library books. Um, Hendrix says the kids were in bed by 930 and that Susan was back between 10 p.m. and 1045 And he left the house around 11 p.m. to go uh, to leave on his business trip. And it wasn't usual for him to go on business trips at night um, because he was he was a businessman. Mm -hmm. Um, The trip. This also was like something that had been planned a week in advance. So it wasn't necessarily seen as like super sketchy. Um, The Hendricks in general were. A very well-off and very religious family, especially David. So they were part of um, a conservative Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren, and um, they would meet. They didn't really have like a a church. They would meet in each other's houses. Right. It was it was private.
1: Was it? It was sort of like a maybe like a callback to the Puritans, I guess. Is that, that's, like, the Plymouth in their name, maybe? because Because, guess I think that's what they used to do, just, like, meet in people's houses and stuff. I should
2: have looked at more about it, but I didn't.
1: It Um, it sounds kind of vaguely creepy. Yeah. Not as much as, like, the family or something. Like, that's, like, the Duggars, creepy Christian cult people, but...
2: That's, That's a whole other thing, man.
1: Okay, so it wasn't quite to that level. No. Okay. No. Okay.
2: Um, yeah, they were basic... They're basically a well-known, classic, all-American family. Um, Like I said, David was a businessman, so he made money selling back braces um, that he made of his own design, and he patented like this design himself, and it was very successful. So the articles that I read, um, one of them was from The Pantograph, which is the local newspaper here, and there are a couple of... um, uh, stories about it and I couldn't find the original one that, um, it's archived and I had to pay, pay $8 to get into it. And I wasn't about to do that bullshit. Yeah. Jesus. Um, so this changed like the area of Bloomington a lot. Um, court hearings were canceled for the day because, um, there weren't any police officers to testify cause everybody was at the crime scene. Right. Um, it's talked about as the most brutal slaying in Um, the town's history, nothing like it has ever happened. Um, and there was a whole rumor mill going on. The media was, was taking this, milking it to the next level. Uh, the mindset there was that there was a murderer at large in this first, you know, 48 hours and um, the media put a lot of guilt on David. The Jennings Law Firm did a poll during the time and found that 86% of those sampled thought that he was guilty. Wow. And a lot of the media attention was centered on David and his life, and a lot of that will be revealed more um, during the trial. So like I said, he was the leading suspect. Police argued that his motive was freedom, freedom, freedom from this um, religious sect. He wanted to be free to pursue other women while escaping from what um, the censure of the church, Um, bad backlash and word and um, being shunned from that type of lifestyle, the prosecutors convinced jurors in the first trial that he was an unfaithful husband. So during this trial, they presented testimony that Hendricks made sexual advances on the women who modeled the back braces that he was marketing. One of the things that was interesting about his marketing was that the women who modeled the back braces were like beautiful, slender women, mm-hmm. blonde makeup.
1: Who clearly did not need a back brace. Clearly
2: did not need a back brace, yes.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so in the documentary, some of his models were actually interviewed. They talked to three of them and all of them had their own story on like the kind of nasty advances that he made on them and tried to when he got them to model he told them to take off their clothes and they weren't that wasn't part of the deal and this, that, and the other thing. So throughout throughout this whole thing He maintains his innocence. He, when he was told of the murders officially, like what happened to his family, he was calm and said, they're with the Lord now, Hmm. which is a weird, I mean, that's a big thing in true crime in general, how the, how that first reaction is to the news. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it odd? Is it?
1: Well, it reminds me of that forensic files that we were just watching where the mom had a birthday party for the just-deceased yes. kids. Yes. And invited the media, and then the police were watching it and were like, well, oh, this is very creepy and strange. I think maybe she had something to do with it. Wasn't because there, like... This is so weird. Yeah, there
2: was, like, silly string, and she was, like, bouncing around. And- yeah.
1: And she said something similar, like, oh, I, I know that it's very sad, but... They're with the Lord now, and they're in a better place, and it's also happy. Like, that's a really weird way to put it. You okay. know, I'm gonna
2: be honest when I say, I think there's kind of science to this, and kind of not. When you're looking at people's reactions, sure. Um, I think I don't think it's a definite kind of thing. I, I think right. a lot of it can be drift, different um, per person. However. There is science to that and reading um, micro-expressions and stuff like that. So the trial was held in Rockford due to the pressures of the media in Bloomington and, Mm. and in McLean County in general. Right,
1: so they had to move it up north.
2: Yes. So there was two months of testimony, and after that he was found guilty and sentenced to four consecutive life terms. So the main argument was well they first started um by taking down his alibi so according to Hendrix's story he was with his kids and had and they had gone to bed around 9 30 and then he wasn't out of the house until 11. so the evidence the evidence well I mean it is evidence but it's questionable on how much it pertains to the case in general the stomach contents of the kids were um, examined, and the times didn't match up. The coroner said that the time of death for the kids was around 9.30, and therefore Hendrix was still with them. According to his story, and the time of death determined from the autopsies, Hendricks was still with
1: the children. So in other words, his alibi was not really an alibi at all. Exactly. According to the Emmy.
2: Yes. So, like I said, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to four consecutive life terms. The thing about this trial was that there were others involved in it who thought that there was more to it, that this couldn't be the end, that he's not, he's not guilty, there's got to be more to this. Um, they talked about the lack of physical evidence and how there was no adequate proof that he was ever at the crime scene mm. in general. The trial judge, Richard Boehner, declined to sentence Hendricks to death, which is actually they first considered sentencing him to death, and then the judge went down to the consecutive life terms. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, based upon the evidence admitted on trial against the defendant, I am not personally convinced that he has been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: Wow. That's that's a pretty strong statement by the judge. Yeah.
2: Yes. Um,
1: Basically, almost saying that he thinks the jury got it wrong.
2: Yeah. So Hendrix's parents also stood by their son. They thought they thought he was innocent, and I read on one of the articles about how when they were there taking the bodies out of the house, the mom commented to. um a reporter saying that there's no way he could have killed those children and Susie, there's no way. And she really, really believes that like he's innocent. And I personally think that he could be innocent as well. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here, but there isn't any physical evidence against him at all.
1: So there's just nothing really like tying him to the crime fit from a physical forensic standpoint. Exactly. Exactly. But then it's also kind of tough, right? Because he lived in the house, mm-hmm. so his DNA is everywhere. His mm-hmm. fingerprints are everywhere. You know, I, I, did you say at the beginning that the murder weapons were taken from the house?
2: No, they were found in the crime crime scene. But they were, they just were left stripped. Out. They were stripped clean of fingerprints. Oh, right, right,
1: right. So nothing there. So just not all that much to go on generally. Yes.
2: Also, the po- it's possible that the police felt pressured by public outrage. And like I said earlier, there was a lot of media crap, a lot of media sensation going on, rumor mills, right. the news was going crazy, uh, small town, big murders type of thing. He had
1: already been convicted in the court of public opinion. Exactly. Before the trial ever even started. That was
2: one of the big factors of it that I looked at too. Right. When trying to figure out if this was what was going on here. So as we look at... The lack of evidence and the doubt, the Illinois Supreme Court reversed its decision in July of 1990 and Hendricks was issued a retrial. So at this point, he was in jail for about seven to eight years um, and then he was issued a retrial. After further review, they concluded the prosecutors improm- improperly presented the evidence of his misconduct with the models. Um, as well as his religious affiliations. They also argued that the misconduct with the models, that although it's awful, it's not relevant, and it also unfairly prejudiced the jury against him. And the jurors this time found him not guilty. Yeah. So technically, there's a lot of weird evidence, but he was acquitted and is walking free.
1: So that was the last – there were just those two trials?
2: Yes, he had the two trials.
1: And then the state didn't um, appeal the second trial? Right, right.
2: So uh, Steve Bogle, a man who covered the case at the time because he was the director of WJBC AM Radio, he later wrote a book about it um, called The Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, and it became a bestseller. So even him – he was also um, interviewed in the 2020 special – he, he believes that Hendrix quote, probably didn't do it. Hmm. Overall, um, Hendricks spent, like I said, about seven to eight years behind bars. He uh, did a lot of stuff while he was back there. Uh, he was at Menard Penitentiary. He worked on the prison newspaper. He wrote stories about issues like rehabilitation. He published poetry that related to himself and his family's death, Um He even remarried. He married an Ohio woman, um, but divorced her after his release. And then he was also briefly married to um, a third woman before his current 15 plus year marriage. That's still ongoing right now. Currently, he lives in Florida with his fourth wife and his back price business is still successful.
1: I guess sex sells even in the back break business.
2: I think a lot back of it was...
1: brace business.
2: I know. That's a hard one.
1: Back brace back, Back brace business. Back brace business. I think a lot of
2: it Ba-da-ba-da-ba. had to do with it was patented by him.
1: Oh. And so it must have... Gotta get this It
2: must have worked well.
1: Whenever you watch Shark Tank, they always ask, what's the one question they always, always ask? Do you have a patent? Do you have a patent? And that's like half of the thing, you know? <laughs> like, if you don't have a patent, they're just like, nope. Not going to be able to do it.
2: I read somewhere that Snapchat was on Shark Tank, and they said no.
1: I could see that. I could see them saying no.
2: Isn't that weird?
1: Well, I just don't think that any of them is, like, in. I don't know. Well, maybe that's not true of all of them, but it just doesn't seem like it would be that profitable. It's hard to pitch an
2: idea like that in general.
1: Exactly. It's, like, hard to kind of explain exactly what it is and— yeah. yeah.
2: So this was, yeah, my cold case, my hometown murder cold case. So happens. did anyone
1: have, sorry to interrupt you, did anyone have any theories, like, as to who actually did do it?
2: They they might think it was an outside, it had to be an outside person, an outside killer. Um, because he was such a successful businessman, uh, some of the private investigators that um, his family later hired or was it Susan's side of the family that hired? I think it was Susan's side of the family that hired private investigators when Hendrix was um, given the retrial and um, not and was seen not guilty. Yeah, and they found something that could point to someone else and somebody who was jealous of Hendrix and wanted to take him down. Mm. It was a a hate crime? Is that how you would classify that? No, not really. No. It was motivated.
1: Right, right. So that that would have been the um that would have been the, the motive. Would have been to like get back at him because he was a more successful businessman or whatever.
2: Maybe he um stomped on a couple people's feet to get to the top.
1: That that could be, you know, maybe he was one of those people who kicked down and kissed ass up, you know. Nice. Could be.
2: So my sources were Wikipedia, of course. The two thousand eight Pantograph article by Bill Flick, the News Gazette article by Jim Day, nineteen eighty nine Chicago Tribune article by Wes Smith and a Crime Feed article by Mike McPadden. Yay.
1: Yeah. Murder. And so how far away from here did it happen?
2: East side of Bloomington.
1: But yeah, that's that's pretty interesting.
2: <sighs> Yay. Okay. Mystery. Murdery. Thingy. Tell me about your thingy.
1: Thingy, 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 thingy. I
2: don't know thingy, what it is, I'm excited.
1: So I am going to talk about um, Great Zimbabwe, which is a ruined city. <gasps> in the southwestern part of Zimbabwe near Lake Mutrique.
2: Okay, wait, let me get comfortable.
1: Wait. Okay. Wait. Okay, I'm ready. Settle in.
2: I'm settled.
1: The um, ruined city of Great Zimbabwe was the capital of the kingdom of Zimbabwe in the late Iron Age. So this is medieval times in Europe. So it was first being occupied in like the 5th century, and its main kind of occupancy or its heyday was from the 11th to the 15th centuries.
2: So was this place kind of like
1: Rome? Mm, I wouldn't say it was like Rome per se, because it wasn't that extensive. It was more... I mean it, it did have some regional impact for sure but you know it was more like a, I, don't, I don't it was more like a city state than a true empire like Rome Got
0: it
2: got it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. And it's not entirely known who built it, who built these like massive stone structures. Oh, sweet. That's kind of like the main mystery. So we'll get into the theories about that. In just a minute, but first let's talk about the actual ruins themselves, because they're they're pretty fucking cool. So it's a stone city that covers about seven and a quarter square kilometers, which is about four and a third square miles, and at its height, they think that um, it had a population of about 18,000. Okay. So, you know, pretty extensive city for that place and time, for sure. And it was probably where the palace of the king was, the, the king of the kingdom of Zimbabwe. Um, and it houses or it encompasses some of the second oldest large structural buildings in southern Africa. Oh, wow. Other than these ones that were built by the Mapungubwe in South Africa a little bit before and probably had... An impact, an influence on the people who then built the Great Zimbabwe uh, ruins. Because that's another thing about them that their their architectural style, and especially this one particular building that I'll talk about, they don't really know a what it was supposed to be or b w- why they built it. Because it doesn't their architectural style really doesn't relate to the people around them. And they didn't seem to have an influence on those people, and they didn't seem to have an influence on them. So it's kind of like this weird... um, Independent. Independent, kind of offshoot, avant-garde kind of kingdom of total hipsters, but in in medieval Southern Africa. So that's pretty cool. So (laughs) the structures themselves, some of them are walls, which stand... About 15 feet tall. Oh shit! So these are, like I said, pretty huge, and all of these structures were made using only stone, no mortar. So the, the, there was nothing, in other words, holding them together like you would normally see in, you know, like a, an ancient or medieval stone tower from Europe. You know, okay, okay, where the, there would be stone slabs. They were just stacked. They were just they were simply stacked together and in order to create structures that were that large and have endured for this long just with stones they would ha- they had to be like extremely precise in terms of how they were cut yeah and also in terms of how they were placed
2: yeah because so- Stone is usually pretty uneven. Like in general, if you're trying to move pieces around and put them together, it's not like a. It's not like they're Legos.
1: Exactly. They're, th- this isn't uh, fucking Minecraft, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- this is people who had to figure out. You know, how are we going to move these stones? How are we going to hew them in a way that you know we can have some regularity? And then how are we going to place them? so that they actually hold up and it doesn't all just fall apart and it creates the structures that we want. And not only that, but creating structures that are, you know, functional, but also are architecturally interesting Weather and resistant. beautiful. You know, these are like, some of these structures are, are have some detailing even. You know, it's not just a pile of rocks, you know, th- this is something very impressive, and, and people who encountered it were always very impressed by it. And we'll, we'll kind of get into some of that stuff as well. But another big um, feature of, the, uh, of, of, of of the Great Zimbabwe ruins is what's called the Great Enclosure. And the walls of the Great Enclosure, some of them are as high as 36 feet.
2: So is it like a little
1: building? sort of it the the great enclosure and there's there's three separate kind of parts and they were occupied at different times so we'll we'll get into that a little bit here but just to wrap up with the great enclosure itself because that's kind of the the main sort of aspect of it that I think people are impressed by and it it it's a self enclosed you know area that seems like and and again people don't really know what these things were meant to be but it seems like it was a like a redoubt you know somewhere where you could look out from and defend well from you know kind of a um a a fortress in a sense
2: so was it on top of
1: a hill it was actually not on top of a hill but there, there are other parts of the Great Zimbabwe Ruins that are on top of a hill. But the Great Enclosure, the uh, walls are as high as 36 feet, so really big, like three stories. And they run 820 feet. Oh. Kind of in a big circle. So like I said, it's a large enclosed area. And there's that big wall, and then there's another kind of smaller wall this is that's one, within it.
2: This is one that definitely needs pictures, that... I'll be posting.
1: There are a number of pictures, and yes, I'll send those over to you. There are a bunch of them on the Wikipedia page, and they're they're really nice, actually, some of them. And, uh, like I said, this is the largest or one of the largest structures south of the Sahara Desert. So in this whole, you know, the main part of the continent, this is kind of the big site.
2: That's so interesting.
1: And like I said, it has three distinct archaeological groups. There's the hill complex, and and it's kind of two or three hills ar- around it, which is a, a bit like Rome, actually, uh, now that I think of it. And those were mainly occupied from the 9th to the 13th centuries. Then there's the great enclosure, which is you know kind of lower down, and that was occupied from the 13th to the 15th centuries. And then the valley parts, and there there are two separate valley parts, kind of the upper and lower valley, were occupied from the 14th to the 16th centuries.
2: Why were they occupied at different times?
1: Exactly. That's a really good question. There are different theories about that. Some people think that they weren't actually occupied at different times and that they were simply different areas that were used for different purposes.
2: Okay. I feel like that makes more sense than...
1: It may make more sense if you're just thinking about it from a sort of narrative perspective. But
2: scientifically, does it exactly say...
1: radiocarbon dating yeah. and other methods show us that it it actually was occupied at these different times? Personally, I think probably they were occupying the hills first because
2: uh-huh.
1: that's the most defensible position, right? Yeah. I mean, in in warfare and in tactics, the world over, throughout all of time. What's the one cardinal rule, right? You occupy the high ground. That's always what you do. There's, there's no other technique in warfare that is equivalent to uh, you occupy the high ground. Yeah. <laughs> because then you're running downhill at the other people, right? Or you're shooting them from there. Exactly. Or you can see them from a far way away. You know, why is a giraffe's neck so tall? Probably not so it can see its enemies, but. Maybe, you know.
2: So it can get food off the high trees.
1: That as well. Why do they have black tongues? I don't know. It's pretty cool, though. I like it. (laughs) I don't know why. I just think it's cool. Giraffes are cool. Giraffes are very cool. They're not my favorite animal. We know what that is. They're
2: my mom's favorite animal. Oh, really? Um, Yeah.
1: Oh, that's nice. (laughs) That's a nice thing. (laughs) Okay, to get back to what we were t- what we were actually talking about. A um w- one of the hill complex um, notable features is the eastern enclosure. So it's another big wall and it held what's probably the most kind of interesting architectural feature of the Great Zimbabwe ruins, which were the Zimbabwe birds. And this symbol of the bird was very important to the the kingdom of Zimbabwe and also to the modern Zimbabwean state.
2: So there were sculptures and art and stuff? What? Or was there a type of bird around that time that they... Did they worship it?
1: Yes. So the the bird seems to refer to a god in the local... I think it's Yoruba pantheon. Uh Uh-huh. Which may have been derivative of the god Horus... From okay. Egypt, which is okay. one of the main main Egyptian gods, right?
2: Which I suppose is a, a more north.
1: Oh yes, mm-hmm. but but there there was contact, as okay. we'll as we'll get into kind of at the toward the end, b- between the north and, and and here, and actually even further away. But in in terms of those uh, birds, they they were. Like you were saying, s- sculptural for sure, and and they were carvings out of stone, but they were very sculptural. Yeah, you know they they were they were kind of done, and uh, there were, well, I should say when they were found, they were not ensconced in their original locations. They had already come to ruin when they were discovered, which I think was kind of later on in like the nineteenth century, and then there were copies of them made. And that's kind of the the main way that people see them now.
2: Wait, there were copies.
1: Mm-hmm. There there were copies of them that were made by um, what's his name, Cecil Rhodes, who will we'll kind of get to him here in a little bit. Do 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 do. May have come from the god Horus. Oh right. And this uh sy- this bird symbol was seen both on the apartheid era Rhodesian flag oh. and also on the Zimbabwean flag. So it's, it's literally the symbol of the country wow. is this and, and the, the Zimbabwe ruins themselves actually are a symbol of the country.
2: Dude, we should go.
1: That would be so cool. <laughs> and then uh, the other notable feature that I was going to mention from the ruins, w- is the conical tower, which is, between those two walls in the great enclosure. And the, the conical tower, it's 18 feet in diameter. Oh, wow. And 30 feet high. Okay. And there are no openings. So it's not a tower in that sense. There's no door. There are no windows. It is a solid stone structure.
2: So it's not hollow?
1: That's what it appears. from what it, From everything I was reading, it appears that... It is a solid stone structure, and no one—this one especially, like, this feature especially, no one really knows why they built it, for what purpose it served.
2: Okay, yeah, I was just about to ask. I guess that's one of the questions here, right? Like, could this be for war? Could it be for protection? Was this a a fortress? Was this a fort? It wasn't a no, fort, right? It,
1: it was definitely not. Because if you look, if and again, if you look at the pictures of it, you can clearly see that it, it was not meant to have people upon it. It was meant to just be a freestanding structure. Oh. So to me, what? it seems more symbolic, perhaps. Maybe it was a kind of monument, you know, in the same way in which, you know, with maybe a thousand years from now, if people see the ruins of Washington, D.C., right? And and they look at the Washington Monument and oh. they say, like, what was this? Why would anyone build? This? It serves no purpose. It's just a s- solid stone structure and it's, you know, hewn very nicely. It, it's obviously very intentional, but what is that intention? How could so we possibly it, know? Yeah,
2: so it makes sense that it's more of just a monument?
1: To That's... To me that's what that's I think. what you think? I'm not an archaeologist, I have no idea, but yeah, that's what I would think.
2: So I may be asking ahead again, but do they know the culture of the people there besides the the bird god thing?
1: A little bit, but there there's also a little bit of a dispute in terms of who actually built them, right so we'll'll'll we'll, we'll, we'll get into that stuff so by the time the europeans discovered the site in the 1500s it was already pretty much abandoned and had started to go into decay and the europeans who were mostly the portuguese early on wondered you know who had built these great structures with such precision and how were they able to do it excuse me without using mortar or anything so let's let's get into some of those those theories now of of who built the Great Zimbabwe ruins. Aliens. Must have been ancient aliens. <laughs> That's what the history channel teaches me. Initially the Europeans discounted the idea that it could possibly have been the local African people. Of course. That almost didn't even enter their minds, right? Because of racism. A, a constant theme, right, throughout history. God, <laughs> right. And the early colonialists thought that perhaps there had been some kind of a Semitic or Phoenician or Arabic offshoot community or people that had come down to southern Africa and built this city. Okay. So that was that was their idea. and and I think well from, from their perspective. And and I think this was probably unconscious, right? But from their perspective, perhaps they were echoing what they themselves saw themselves doing, right? That they were coming in and colonializing this area, which is only the natural right of the white man, right? Because again, racism. So they thought, oh, maybe this has happened before. Maybe okay. there maybe there had been a people before who had come from a more quote unquote advanced culture. And set themselves up here and dominated the local people. So
2: they weren't the first. That's what they were thinking.
1: That's what they were thinking. I
2: guess that's pretty plausible.
1: Eh, I mean, it could be plausible. We'll we'll find out that it's not what happened. And part of the reason that we know that is because of an early female archaeologist named Gertrude Caton Thompson.
2: Yeah, female.
1: Right. And in 1929, she did a, for then, extremely modern survey of the site. And, and that's what people said. They said, you know, her theory, which was that the site was medieval, the prevailing thought at that time was that the site was much older, and that it was built by the local Bantu people. And the reason why her theory had credibility was because she used those modern techniques and actually developed some of the techniques that are still used in modern archaeology now in terms of setting up a grid and doing that sort of stuff. She was one of the people who actually pioneered those sorts of modern archaeological techniques.
2: Brushing off bones and shit, putting on your glasses, being Indiana Jones.
1: Scaring kids with you know, fossils of Tyrannosaurus rexes, that sort of thing. Sam Neill, if you recall. Yeah. Just like a bird. And later, Caten Thompson said that there may have been some Arabic influence as well. Um, which we'll see actually may have been the case. And more modern research has definitively shown... That the people who created the great Zimbabwe um city were definitely African, so that's totally been put to rest, and also that the settlement did start to be occupied in the fifth century, and the consensus among modern archaeologists is and I'm not totally sure how to say this, but that it was the Gokomere people mm-hmm. i'm I'm just assuming that's how you say it. And they are, or rather were, a Shona-speaking Bantu subgroup.
2: I know these words.
1: Right. So the, the Bantu are an ethnic
2: group. Yes, yes.
1: In, in Africa that are still around today. their descendants, obviously. And one of the languages that were spoken by those people was Shona. Shona. Right, in that area. And these were a group of people who spoke. Shona, and were part of the Bantu, you know, ethnic group.
2: And made beautiful music.
1: I'm sure. And they flourished, uh, the Gokumede did, between 200 and 800 uh, CE. And they were probably related to that group that we mentioned briefly earlier, the uh, Mapungubwe people, who lived a little bit further to the south, in what's now South Africa. Okay. South Africa and Zimbabwe are border each other if that wasn't already clear. <laughs> but the so this is where there's some dispute. The Lemba people also claim that they actually constructed the Great Zimbabwe city. And How can are,
2: an, an entire people claim that they did it well, and then be proven wrong?
1: Neither of them have really been proven well, one yeah, way or the yeah, other yeah. per se, but the the consensus is that it was the Gokumere. Um but this other group of of uh, Bantu people, the Lemba, also claim to have constructed it. so they're also part of this Bantu group, but they have some uh distinct religious practices. That are similar in some ways to Jewish and Islamic practices.
2: Okay, so that explains some of the Arabic, maybe.
1: Right, and they claim that those influences were transmitted orally, you know, from from the north, and perhaps that also brought with it, you know, people from those Arabic or Semitic cultures who moved down and uh, and had that influence, perhaps. But it's it's all kind of a bit. You know, speculative So, like I said, there may have been Some of that, you know, influence That came down through through the Lumba people If they were, in fact, the ones who, who did build it But, unfortunately, you know Damage, mainly in the past hundred years By looters And misguided attempts to restore the site mm. Mostly since the 1980s have done damage. And, you know, it It may not at this point be totally possible to know, you know, who really built them. But those are the best ideas that we have so far. And whoever built it, whichever culture it was that built the great Zimbabwe city, probably declined along with the Mapungubwe starting in about 1300. And like I said, by the time Europeans got there in the 16th century, it it was, you know, greatly in decline. And there are also different theories. This is a little bit of a mystery as well as to why that culture declined. There are some, and of course these may not be mutually exclusive, but there are some people who think it was mainly due to climatic changes, that there was less rainfall, that there were, you know, food and water shortages or maybe more generally resource shortages so people just died out died out moved away you know what what have you It, it, it wasn't tenable and there are definitely cities in for example the sahara that we can see were you know because the sahara used to be much much smaller than it was now so there are cities out in the desert you know that we know basically it desertification occurred It wasn't tenable to live there, so they moved away and it became ruins. So that may also have happened to Great Zimbabwe in a sense. But the gold market, which is what they mainly traded in, may also have been a part of the decline. The shifting of the gold market to other parts of southern Africa and away from Great Zimbabwe, either because of larger trading factors or because of the depletion of the local gold, you know, resources, and, and they did take out quite a bit of gold at this site, about 20 million ounces, wow. it's estimated, we're, were mined at this site over the years. Over
2: the years in, okay.
1: At, at the great, uh, you know, in, in this general area and then traded from Great Zimbabwe. So I'm
2: confused.
1: Go on, what's up?
2: When would they be mining gold? From what eras?
1: Throughout the entire time.
2: Okay. You know. For and so, when did it stop being a a, a resource?
1: Probably somewhere between the, you know, fourteenth century and the sixteenth century.
2: Oh, so, so between a, long like time, oh, and a long time ago. a long time ago. Yeah, the, it was the, still. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, definitely. Sorry. Does did, did that did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Good. Thank you.
2: I was like, were they mining gold in the sixties or what's going on? Yeah.
1: No. Yeah, but in in fifteen hundred when the Portuguese were going there, they thought they were going to find like El Dorado, you know, they thought that they were yeah, like, yeah. get rich quick, you know, and uh, that ended up not exactly being the case. Uh, it, it, it turned out. So in its heyday, though, Great Zimbabwe was definitely a big trading hub. And we know that because we find artifacts from China, from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, from Syria, from Arabia. So they were trading, like I said, mainly in gold but also in ivory and other things all, you know, around the um, continent and as far away as China.
2: That's crazy.
1: I know. it's, It's pretty nuts to think that there was a global trading market, you know, whatever, 800 years ago. That already existed. (laughs) I
2: mean, when you look at it, it makes sense. Yeah. The nomadic people.
1: And I think we're learning more and more about how often and how far flung human expansion has been. You know, that there wasn't just one great migration out of Africa, for example. But there were probably at least three. Two that went toward China and one that went toward Europe, and uh, that one of them actually probably came back and then left again, perhaps. So, the, you know, this whole story of human migration and, you know, everything—it's it's just so much more complicated than I think we we give it credit for, and we can see that in some ways through a site like Great Zimbabwe, where you can see not only. Were there great cities in that era as well? There were also great cities in that era in Africa, which people probably don't think of a lot of, right, of ancient great civilizations and cultures. I mean, uh, obviously, there were and uh, people think that when I say people don't think that people who are ignorant of history don't think that. Yes. You know, people who think that Africa is a country don't think that, <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty basic. But, you know, anyway, so the Great Zimbabwe site is a World Heritage Site, uh, which is designated by UNESCO. And like I was talking about before, it's really seen as a symbol of the nation and as kind of a lens through which people have seen the nation that we now call Zimbabwe. The early colonialists, like Cecil Rhodes of Rhodesian ignominy, saw it as a sign of the potential wealth of this new land that he and his friends were conquering. Caton Thompson, the female archaeologist, uh, archaeologist whom we mentioned earlier, while recognizing that the site was built by Africans, saw in it a, quote, product of, a, of an infantile mind. So let's let's not you know get any illusions that she was like some kind of progressive. She was also a racist who saw, and I don't really understand that how that works. But
2: like, and like a child, I'm confused.
1: I guess so. Maybe she thought, oh, this was all just for show or something. I'm not really sure. But there there are there a lot of flawed notions that are flying around in relation to you know, great Zimbabwe and in the Rhodesian apartheid government, it was, which was in power until 1980. It was actually basically illegal to admit that the site was built by Africans. What? Yeah. The main archeologist, there's a lot of
2: crazy laws in the apartheid. Oh, I know. I know a lot of crazy bullshit.
1: The, the, the main archeologist, um, who was studying it for the Rhodesian government actually left the country because of, of this, you know, sort of denialism and um, the the apartheid state, you know, that aspect of it itself. And to the black nationalists, it was a sign, Great Zimbabwe was a sign of what Africans could accomplish. Yes. Right. In the same way that the great historical sites in all the other parts of the world are symbols to those people, right?
2: As, yes, yes.
1: Exactly. And they when they they did, you know regain control when the native people did regain control of the of the nation in 1980, when the apartheid government ended, they chose to name their country, Zimbabwe, after the ruined city.
2: So Zimbabwe wasn't a country until 1980.
1: That's correct. Before that, it was known as Rhodesia. I, I I'm not well versed in the whole history of of the you know of that part of the world, but my understanding is that the during the colonial era, these governments right these colonialist governments were set up and the nations as we know them now were set up basically, but those were done those lines were drawn without any regard for the native people, for the the ethnic groups that lived there, who was warring with whom, who was friends with whom. Yeah. It was just, you know, the convenience of the colonialists. And they also set out to reclaim the lost history, right, that had been sub- uh, suppressed by the Rhodesian government. And, again, part of the reason why some of this is so mysterious, is because of that official obscuring of the truth and of the real history.
2: I bet there's a lot of that in Africa. Well, t- and all over the
1: world. Sure, but, you know, the I think these colonialist governments, like we were talking about, are particularly prone to that. They depend upon a rewriting of history, because if the real history is known then you realize that the the colonialist notions are built upon a foundation of sand they're they 're not real you know the, this whole notion that you have some kind of natural right to dominate other people because they 're lesser than you it doesn 't make any sense. it never did it never would have anywhere, but you have to construct these alternative narratives of history in order to support that so i think I think it does probably crop up more in a sense.
2: So this kind of makes me think of Stonehenge in a way sure did they in your research did they talk about how the stones got there how they were moved what they are or were they naturally there
1: they didn't really mention that and and my source my source has I had two of them mainly Wikipedia although really good Wikipedia page I have to say and also a page on ancient pages. But they didn't mention anything about that. I think the stone was local, from what I can, from what I could tell. It was more the construction itself that was mysterious in in terms of the actual production of the site. Yeah,
2: and of course the the why,
1: right? What was the perch pur- uh, purpose of these things, and and so forth? But the you know the the people who again set up the modern Zimbabwean state saw it saw this site, you know, they are kind of reading of what what is the purpose of these buildings? What's the meaning behind these things? First, at first, they said that they saw it as a sign of a harmonious, you know, socialistic society that existed pre-colonialism. You know, before the white man came and messed everything up, we lived in this, you know, sort of utopian state.
2: That's a good viewpoint.
1: It's, it's certainly attractive, but I think it has its own pitfalls, as utopian notions always do. But as time went on, they started to describe it more as a sign of the natural accumulation of wealth in society to a smaller number of people, which is sort of the exact opposite idea. Okay. Right. And I think...
2: So they all moved to this one place.
1: Well, just the, the the notion that having a ruler and having a concentration of wealth to kind of the the ruling class within this one place is a natural state. And I think probably that occurred because that was what was most convenient for the people running the country, right, for the Mugabe regime, you know, throughout the years. As we got, few, you know, further and further away from the actual, you know— um, from from the uh from the revolution and uh, more recently just as a kind of to to end on Zimbabwe has established a university and it was established around the year 2000 mainly to study the ruins so it's what? set up in a, in a a city that's near it and they do a lot of work you know archeologically at the ruins but they also take you know, like we're like we' were just talking about they they take the sort of wider context and the history of it, and they use that as material for art and for studies, and you know just generally i mean this site is so kind of rich in its historical heritage that you can have a whole series of programs and a whole university actually that's that's dedicated to it so yeah, that's the ruins of the great, uh, great city of Zimbabwe. Great Zimbabwe.
2: That was a good history lesson.
1: Right. I, I hope it wasn't too dry. I, I tried. No, to I
2: liked it because punch it up a little. Bit. I think that it um, related to Stonehenge in a way that there's mm-hmm. like this like lost people and there's this lost generation of of culture. Does that make sense? Generation of culture. Does that even make sense?
1: Uh yeah. <laughs> no, that, I think that totally makes sense. It because w- within every time and in every place there there's like a, a a whole panoply of cultures that exists, right? And
2: we'll never really know.
1: Exactly. And nor nor could you unless you were like a native of that time and place. Yeah. And what's interesting what to me What if we're
2: totally wrong? We
1: we could be totally wrong, you know. But what what's interesting to me also is that the the people who live there now and even the people who lived there in the 16th century when the europeans started to arrive they didn't even know for sure you know even to them that had even become lost to history so you know it just it makes me think of all of the the different historical mysteries right i think you could could Go on. You could have a whole podcast just about these kinds of historical mysteries, um, but it, that might get a little dry <laughs> after a while. We need we need some to get some murder in there, and you know some other things,
2: or some weird shit in the news.
1: Some what? Some weird, weird shit news. in the news. Weird 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 weird. I don't know what that was. Shit, we're gonna be talking about. Shit, because <laughs> oh, we, we let's well. talk about that first. Because we okay, let me just set the scene. Okay, we're, we're both in your room. Yes, a little while ago. Yeah, about an hour and a half ago, and we're both like, oh my god, I found the best thing. For weird shit in the news. <laughs> and, and then we're like, okay, don't tell me. Okay, you don't tell me about yours. We'll just, we'll, because it's so good. And then I'm looking at my article and I'm like cracking up because it's hilarious.
2: And then I'm like, is yours gross? And, you're, and like, you're like, kind of. Yeah. And I'm like, is it about a high school? Is it from a high school? You're like, yeah. And I'm like, is it about a the the superintendent? superintendent?
1: <laughs> okay.
2: All right, so guys, we have a pooper.
1: There is a real mad pooper on the loose.
2: This is funny because we had the poop train <laughs> now talked oh, yeah. about. <laughs>
1: you know, it's poop. Uh, it's a popular subject. It's a popular subject. Oh
2: my god, that was pretty good.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, this puns gal. So, New Jersey high school. Yes. Apparently, they've been finding poop almost daily oh. by the high school track. So as this continues to occur, right, finding human feces, becoming outraged and disgusted, oh my god, what the hell's going on, next day it happens over again, oh my god, what the fuck?
2: I think it happened like eight times.
1: Eight times, just in the course of a couple of months, and some of them apparently were like consecutive days. So eventually they stake out the track, right, because this is illegal, by the way, you can't just crap outside whenever you want to
2: thank you for the clarification
1: you're not a bear it's not okay (laughs) so they stake it out and to their great surprise who do they see but the local superintendent the
2: fucking not the not the principal not a teacher the superintendent not what is the logic there did they figure out why do they know why? Do they talk to him? Is he in jail?
1: He is in jail. Yes. He is, he's going to be arraigned very soon. We'll, we'll see how he pleads. Uh, I I would hope for his sake that he pleads. It's probably
2: going to be a plea bargain anyway.
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. Probably no contest. Yeah. Because they saw, well, it's actually not entirely clear in the reporting if they literally saw him doing it. But that's kind of what it seems like. Um. And that's what I like to think it was. <laughs> that they, they, like, he stirred, and then they were like, hey, don't, know." And then was he. Was like,
2: some <laughs> Scooby-Doo shit? And then he,
1: like, started running away, but his pants fell down.
2: Superintendent? And then he. would have gotten away with it. Come right. For for you meddling kids and your stupid dog.
1: <laughs> Let's see who it really is.
2: Scooby, Scooby, don't. Oh, Scooby, don't lick it. Oh, Scooby, Scooby. Ooh, 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 ooh.
1: Scooby likes Scooby snacks. Ruh-roh. Scooby like poopy snacks. I don't
2: think Scooby talked in third person.
1: Um, I thought he did. No, you're right. He says, me like. I think that's what he says. Me like Scooby snacks.
2: He doesn't talk like that.
1: Me like poopy snacks. <laughs> I can't really do his voice, so I'm just doing what I can.
2: Okay, so Mario kind of took mine.
1: Well, we took each we other's. We took each other's. Oh, and by the way, we found, like, multiple articles about this. Apparently, yeah. it's a very popular story. I found one in HuffPost and in Time Magazine, and you found one in, uh, From
2: a local New Jersey station.
1: NJ Township or something. I yeah. I can't remember.
2: Um, okay, so... This one's kind of gross. Uh-huh. But I think you'll like it, too,
1: Mario. I, I liked the last one that was kind of gross, so...
2: So... Turns out, uh, okay, so basically we'll set the scene here. So her name is Kendra Jackson, and she's from Omaha, Nebraska. And so basically for um, years, she had a runny nose.
1: Oh, I heard about this one.
2: Oh, you did? Okay, so constant runny nose. Um, And along with it was coughing, sneezing, and headaches. So it became like uh, kind of a, a routine for she'd always have tissues with her. So, eventually, she was like, this is too much. She went to the doctor. Turns out it was a brain fluid leak. Her brain was just dripping through her nose.
1: Apparently a thing that can happen.
2: How nasty is that?
1: Extremely nasty.
2: So, basically, there was, like, a hole between her skull and the nostrils that was allowing the leak and they like went up there with like cameras and shit, and like plugged the. Ooh, is that weird? Like surgery, and um. They, f- they think that the cause was from an, a a uh, head trauma from a car accident that she was in, oh, wow. and that's when the, the leaking started. Um, at, like a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. So, hole in your brain.
1: I- Keep your Sneak brain in your brain, you know.
2: Oh, that one's nasty. Pretty gross.
1: Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty gross. Uh,
2: uh, pretty gross. And they have, like, camera footage, camera footage. they
1: uh-huh. like, ooh. It's like a fucking David Lynch movie. So I also had a good shit in the news. Do it. Um... I was going to just briefly talk about uh, Becky Hammond, who is a actually the first woman who is also an assistant coach for an NBA team, or actually I think in any of the four major sports maybe, with the Spurs actually, which happens to be my favorite basketball team. So that's pretty cool too. And she is, like, a longtime player. She was in the WNBA for many years, and she's, like, a superstar there, and she's been a superstar as a coach so far. And the story is about her being the first woman to interview for an NBA head coaching job. Wow. So, she is almost certainly going to be the first woman head coach of an NBA team.
2: Wow. Which, I
1: think is pretty stupid that that hasn't happened before. <laughs> that's kind
2: of nuts, dude. I knew there were women coaches for like college teams.
1: There have right. been there there have been a few women coaches of male college teams. Yes. There has also been, I think or have rather been two women head coaches of D league teams. Okay. So that's also happened, but would definitely be the first time for an NBA team, and women, probably with the Bucks,
2: women are just getting
1: it. I know, right? It's it's kind of funny when you give uh, both genders a chance to do every job. People from both genders tend to excel in each job. Wow. <laughs> funny how that's like oh, equality works. Hmm. It's not you know just some like frou frou liberal idea. It actually makes sense to <laughs> to have the best people in the in the job anyway.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's all completely obvious but yeah, I I like it because it's the Spurs but I, I like Becky Hammond too She's, she seems really cool I I heard she actually turned down the head coaching job at Colorado State
2: so she could go for this one or just didn't
1: so she, she could go it. for like an NBA job shit yeah.
2: good for her yeah
1: she was like no thank th- thanks but no thanks but no thanks I think it's her alma mater actually too wow yeah Anyway. You good,
2: Mario? I'm good. I
1: think I'm good. Thanks for listening, y'all.
2: Hey, you guys should subscribe, tell your friends, maybe hit us up on Patreon. That'd be so cool.
1: We would so fucking love it. Like Appreciate I said, it. I, I'm going to do my best to get that video up. I know y'all, they, Patreon tells us that people love videos, that you have to put a video basically. We're just trying to follow
2: the directions here.
1: We're, we're just, we're doing it paint-by-number style. You know, we're just trying to do what LPL does. <laughs> no. <We're laughs> trying to do
2: what all the successful
1: podcasters do. Exactly. And we're also trying to think of another tier. So we've got the $1, you get a shout-out. $5, you get the Weird News Extra.
2: Yeah. We're,
1: we're going to do another one of those here.
2: We, we do have one, and we're going to set up another. We're
1: going to do another one real soon. Um, we have our stories. We just haven't recorded it yet. So that'll get you that. And then we're thinking of something else. So we we're kicking around some ideas, but if you have an idea, you know, hit us up, write on our Patreon page, email us, mystery. DM
2: us on Instagram.
1: Mystery murdery thingy at Gmail, or find us on Instagram, you know, whatever. All the bullshits, as Henry would say. Henry Zabrowski, who I contractually have to mention in every third episode. Yes, that's what I do. And what else? Anything else? I think that's it. I think that might be it. Yeah. Bye. I think, was, was
2: there something else?
1: I don't think so. I don't so, know so. about you, man. I'm going to bed. Yeah, it's, like,
2: really fucking late. <laughs> okay. Um.
1: Uh, bye.